And so building affordable housing is tough, right? You got cities and all that stuff. And so sometimes those cities take the joy out of it and it kind of beats you down, but you got a purpose. And so you keep doing it. But this project is, um, is the fun project, right? Two, three. Welcome to House Rich, the real estate show. We talk to average people that have done above average things in real estate. Today's guest is Scotty Smith, senior Black Enterprise Forbes, and now my podcast. Um, he's purchased homes. He purchased home at 19. He's a real estate developer. He's purchasing this. Uh, he's um, doing this dope project uh, here in the Dallas area called Lake Noir, where he's uh, building about 20 cabins. Um, so going to get into pretty much everything. It's going to be a great interview. Um, the sponsor for today's show is House Rich, the official brand of home ownership. Use promo code POD for a uh, discount on merchandise. You can see it right behind me if you're watching on YouTube. So, uh, Scott, do you want to introduce yourself to the folks and appreciate you for uh, for coming on? What's going on, man? It's uh, I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to the podcast. And um, you know, for the for the people who don't know me, I'm Scotty Smith, um, real estate broker. Uh, investor, educator, and uh, developer. Um, originally from Houston, Texas, but now reside in Dallas, where really my, my goal is very, very simple. And it's to help people using real estate as the vehicle to do so. And so my life's work to this point um, has been helping people uh, within the real estate industry. So I started this whole journey um, at the age of 19, um, bought the property, bought, bought my first property using, you know, scholarship money at 19, um, and really, you know, wanted to create myself, um, some income in college. And, you know, I, I had a really cool, um, real estate professor that challenged us, gave us a huge challenge of, of purchasing a house, really before we ended that class. I didn't make that happen, but the next semester is when I did. And uh, some friends uh, from back home in Houston rented a couple rooms from me and that covered the mortgage. And really that was the start of, um, that was the start of my real estate career, man. I just, I recognized how easy the process was for me, but how convoluted it could get if you didn't have the right person um, helping you with that. And so um, I set out to really change the way um, real estate agents and realtors uh, sold property. And so it, it, it was more so I wanted to make certain that, um, that our people um, and my potential clients learn the real estate process uh, and learn how to use real estate as a as a vehicle to build generational wealth. Okay. And so I put together classes. I put together a number of things. Wrote a book, um, and I was actually one of the youngest brokers in a DFW at the time when I when I did get my uh, real estate brokerage license. And so I think there was only one other gentleman that was younger than me. Um, but what age was that? I was I was twenty one when I became a broker. Okay. And so it was. It was a pretty dynamic, uh, pretty dynamic situation for me um, because before the age of twenty-one, I had um, I bought my first rental, I did my first wholesale deal, and I, I was working on my my very first uh, large-scale renovation flip. And so at that point, you know, at such a young age, 
I realized that I was I was on a fast track. Uh, and I said, you know, my goal was to become a multimillionaire in real estate before I graduated college. Okay. Having no idea that um, what was about to happen <laughs> with the with the entire economy. And, um, you know, that's really when the uh, the housing crisis happened and the bottom okay. fell out. And so um, but even still, man, it just it, the journey in this real estate industry for me has always been to to help folks. And it was, you know, how can I use what's going on as um, a catalytic path to change the trajectory of a number of people's lives? And so okay. uh, what I did was I still, you know, once the market started to rebound, I still tried to make certain that folks understood that we could use this as an opportunity to buy low build wealth and sell when the market rebounds and so i started okay. getting really creative i did what i believe the first ever uh dallas foreclosure tour where i put home buyers and investors on a bus and said listen if you want a house it's possible don't think of these things as your your, your final home let's go in here let's think like an investor and let's Let's buy a home that may need a little bit of work that's been foreclosed on. Let you and your family live there, build wealth, fix it up, do what you need to do. It was a very successful uh, situation. And um, man, man, it's just, you know, taking, like you said, average people doing above average things. And I think yeah. that is exactly the way to describe it. So. Okay, cool. Thank you. So I just want, want, to, want to jump back. See, I was curious what inspires you to buy a home at 19 in the first place you say you're trying to generate income a lot of folks like i'm gonna sell some t-shirts i'm gonna make some flyers i'm gonna be a party promoter but like so you, you actively got into a real estate class and so what what inspired you to get into that class in the first place so um there was always the real estate bug so my my, my stepfather uh, and my mother were they, they did some things in real estate specifically my, my stepfather was a contractor okay. and uh you know he worked a lot for the people who owned the real estate and you know i would look up and he would do a lot of work and you know the house would be nice and pretty and at the end of it he's giving the keys to somebody else mm -hmm. and i you know i was like okay that's cool and i used to work with him i i did roof work ran HVAC, you know, went under houses. I was, I was with him during this. So I saw a lot of that process, but I'll tell you one thing, the, 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 the summers of Houston and running HVAC work will really have you uh, changing uh, <laughs> your mindset and shifting gotcha, gotcha. your mindset. And so being in addicts and, and installing uh, AC units and uh -huh. running duct work in Houston in the middle of the summer, is hot. Let yeah, me tell you. Yeah, yeah. And so what what I wanted to find out, what I sought out is how do I become the person who's getting the keys when the project is finished? Okay. And, and my senior year in high school, I used to spend a lot of time in the library. We had a, a really gorgeous librarian uh, at my high school. So I spent a lot of time in her space. <laughs> and she gave me a book. Um Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And so that changed my mindset. And then when I when I got to college at UNT, um, I was like, yo, I'm going to take this real estate class. Uh, and the teacher, John Bain, Dr. John Bain, was so dynamic. The first things that he muttered to us when he got into, um, when he came into the class, if you don't own real estate by the end of 
this year or in this class, you didn't learn nothing and I didn't teach you nothing. Gotcha. And I was that was a heavy challenge for me, uh-huh. right? Um, coming from an athletic background, I get challenged like that. I'm, I'm, I'm working to hit it. Uh-huh. And so that's really what set things off for me because someone challenged my thinking. Someone challenged what it was that I thought I knew. And so it was it was interesting because that class was not just a real estate class. It ultimately ended up being um, the epitome and the, the realization and actualization of the things that I read in Rich Dad, Poor Dad just okay. a year prior. And so seeing that, seeing something that was in a book in real life mm-hmm. changed my mind. And I think, you know, there was a point in the class where he showed us and we went through his tax returns, right? And for me, that was life changing because that was the first time I saw someone, you know, who made over a million dollars. Okay. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, it's possible. Yeah, this is real estate. Well, I want in on that. Uh-huh. So, so that's that's really what happened, man. It, it it was, it was. I read something, then I saw that something in real life, and then I wanted to 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 figure out how do I make that happen for my life. Okay, okay, thank you. And so, how how did you actually do that though? Because I mean, you're you're 19. I'm not sure what your employment history was to that date. Like, how did you even get the the money? Um, like how how. how so if I'm 19, I'm 19 years right now, I'm a 19 year old, I'm in college right now. Like how could I execute what you executed on? So the lending guidelines were just a tad bit different. Oh, that's right. Okay. They, they, yeah. were, they were a tad, you, if you had a pulse. Yes, that's, that's true. Right. <laughs> if you had a pulse, you can get along. And so my lender, um, my lender was a really cool guy. I learned so much from him. I forget his name, but I just remember speaking with him so much because he drove a Porsche. All right. And I'm like, okay, what's what's going on? Teach me this, you know. Let me let me see what's going on. And ultimately, what happened? I, I did have a bank job that I was working, um, and I was making like, you know, at that time maybe fifteen dollars an hour. Um, and so that income was kind of my income that that was used for uh, the approval. wasn't on the job very long, maybe three or four months. Okay. And then I had I still had the money from my scholarship and you know some leftover funds from my research, uh from my refund. So I used some of that as my down payment. Okay. And so it was a, it was a it was a dynamic exchange, man. Um so somebody that's 19 right now, you know, it's a it's a little different because yeah, the lending yeah. requirements are, are are a little bit more difficult. But one of the things that I tell these new graduates, right? If you have your offer letter. From you know when you graduate your offer letter, uh, that's in the field that you study. You can you can quite frankly get a loan. Yeah. Is that still the still the thing? That's yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, you don't need the two year history if you um, yeah. become a straight out of college. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would say. You know, if buy a house as soon as you get out. That's the might as well. You're not really tied down. A lot of yeah. time people aren't tied down to a specific area. You know, you hadn't started a real family yet. So yeah, go for it at that point. Gotcha. Thank you. And so what was the plan when you um, graduated college? Like, was it to become a real, like, what was the, what was the plan um, when, you, when you got out of college? Well, so before I got out of college, you know, the, the, the great recession kind of hit us. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for me, real estate was, it was at the forefront, but I was trying to take the safe route, right? What's the safe route? What what could what could give me something that 
you know, if this happens again, I would have something to fall back on. So, you know, I got my degree uh, in finance and I, I interned with one of the big four uh, public accounting firms at the time. And they had a program um, called the YMP program, your master plan program, where they would take non-traditional students, you know, your finance business folks, those, those types of folks, and pay for them to get their, their master's in accounting. Um, and so I did get a, a essentially a full ride to the University of Notre Dame, and I got my master's in accounting thanks to this organization, thanks to this this public company, okay, um, public accounting. And so it was a uh, I got my degree in accounting, thinking that I wanted to be an auditor, yeah. and uh, you know, so I worked for this company for a couple of years, you know, just kind of waiting on the market to to snap back. And I realized that I absolutely hated it. I absolutely hated it. it. It was not my purpose. I was in a room, you know, at, at some of these companies that I was auditing that was pretty much a closet. Okay. And uh, counting widgets, making certain that these folks were, you know. And I think for me, what, what, what got me really motivated is in the height of that Great Recession, I was doing an audit. Uh, while everybody else was going broke, mm -hmm. for the most part, I was doing an audit of this company here in, in North Texas that uh, the bonus that I, the executive bonus compensation that I was auditing was, you know, some of the, some of the execs and the, and the you know, C-level uh, executives were, were making six and seven figure bonuses in the oh. middle of the recession. And they didn't do anything but recycle old batteries. They had a process that allowed for them to extract the lead from old batteries, put it together, and then sell it back to the battery makers. <laughs> and they were making money hand over fist. And so it, it let me know that you can sit here and be safe all you want to, uh -huh. but there's somebody out here who's taking batteries and recycling lead and selling it back to battery makers and making a crazy amount of money uh -huh. in the middle of the recession. So you're going to be safe. Are you going to go and take a risk and hit it big? And so at that point, I talked to one of the partners and was like, I'm out, man. Oh. I'm out. I can't, I can't do this anymore. Okay. Um, oh, sorry. No, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then is that when you transitioned into, like, did you have your real estate license at that time? Or, okay. Yeah, and so at, at that point, were you just, were you working under another, I assume you're working under another brokerage. And then what, what, uh, how was that process? And then what inspired you to open up your own, your own shop? Yeah. So, I was working under uh, a friend of mine's brokerage. He was a small, um, it was mostly small multifamily and investment properties that, that we were doing. Okay. Um, and I wanted to make certain that we grew the, the, the residential side. And so I wanted to make certain that we helped more people get into home ownership and understand home ownership like investors understand owning. Um, and I, I, I sent him a message. I sent him a, a full plan and I said, listen, you know, we need to we need to create the we need to create the residential side of this this brokerage is right now it was just him and I and he was he was trying to grow the um, he was trying to grow the the, the multifamily side with, with agents and I said let me focus on the residential you focus on the you know you focus on the multifamily and uh, the plan was really 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 dope it was great. Uh, of course, I'm a little biased, but because uh, <laughs> I put it together. But he ended up telling me 
He ended up telling me, no, I don't want to have anything to do with residential real estate. And I said, okay, man, I love you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for everything you've taught me. I've learned so much from you, but I'm going. And so that's when I started uh, Scotty Smith and Associates. And it really was just because I got, I got the push I needed from um, the broker that I was working with. Okay. Still a buddy of mine, still a friend. Um, we're, we're, we're likely going to be connecting a lot this year. Okay. Um, but yeah, just it really just a push, man. That's all, that's all it was. So how do you actually go about opening up your brokerage? You know, you have to be a realtor for a certain amount of time, get a brokerage license. And then like, how do you actually open one up? Like, is it um, as far as like the fees in the process? Yeah, so... Um, at that point, you had to be uh, licensed, an active licensee for two years. Okay. Um, and so an active licensee for two years, and then you go and take your broker exam, pass that, and then you're a broker. Now, it's a requirement that you're an active licensee for four years. Okay. Plus, you have to have a certain, you know, they kind of give you this report card, so to speak of your four years, you have to hit certain numbers, have done so many transactions, have an understanding. Then now there's some additional classes that brokers and licensees have to take in order to become a broker. And so as a broker, um, you, you then have the, um, you then have the authority um, to, uh, you then have the authority to to, to hire agents on your behalf, to work on your behalf. Um, and with that comes risk. You have to have insurance, you know, insurance on your agents. You have to have all these things, um, your systems in place, your website, all of those things, stuff to help the agents be successful if you're um, planning on hiring agents. And so one of the things that, you know, I, I tell people is if you want to become a broker, if you want to become a broker and hire agents, really kind of look at what, what that expectation is of you from agents. How much training are you going to provide? What type of systems are you going to provide for your agent to ultimately be successful? And so uh, what type of marketing are you going to provide? Those are the things that we look at. Um, okay. And that's what agents look at as well. And then, so I want to jump back for a second. You were talking about when you had the previous um, job looking at a home from the from the perspective of an investor versus like just a normal buyer can you talk about that perspective of uh, an investor yeah so an invest so i i wrote a book a few years back um from decision to close um and it's on amazon if anybody wants to go grab that but uh well i'll drop the link in the uh, description for that too so y'all can find it there and so um in that book, I talk about the anything theory. It's a, it's a theory that I created, and it's very, very simple, not a complex theory at all. It says that you can change anything about it about, about a house except its location, right? <laughs> and so, and even now, you know, with how they're taking houses off foundation and shipping them across America, that's, you know, that can be changed. But when you look at what you can change on a property, um, which is pretty much for the most part, anything, uh -huh. we have to consider how we look at real estate altogether when we're purchasing it. The average person is staying in their house five to seven years, their first home five to seven years. And so if you could find a property that is in what we consider a high growth area or the potential for high growth, um, and it's below market, 
Um, obviously, and you know, at the day that it's recording, it's 2022, and you know, stuff is astronomical right now. But it'll there'll be a correction at some point. But if you can find something in a high growth area where you can fix this thing up, similar to what an investor does, fix it up, and then just ride the wave for the five to seven years that you're going to potentially be there at that property. Mm-hmm. You come out on top at the end of that because you didn't buy something at the tippy top of the market. Yeah. You didn't buy something overpriced. You didn't, you know, you didn't spend money above what it appraised for. So coming in with a mindset of, hey, how do I create value in this property, or how can I create value in this property, and and then be able to capitalize on that in five to seven years? So thinking about it from that perspective, right? So not just from a consumer standpoint, oh, I want the best house on the block. I want all the bells and whistles to be there, you know, so. So how do you actually identify a high growth area? Like I'm just a, like I said, I'm a 21 year old trying to find a home right out of college. How do I identify that, that high growth area? Um, so I look at, I look at a few things when I'm identifying high growth areas. When you go and look on the MLS and you see properties there's a heavy flip market, right? Okay. And you see properties that are, you know, really, really low in price in comparison to everything else. Some that's really, really high in price. And that specific, you know, that, that sub-demographic is kind of all over the place, right? Okay. And you look at what's going on, typically what happens is investors are coming in, buying those properties for low, then relisting them, you know, at the market price, at the market rate, yeah. and sometimes what happens is that current, that current community doesn't realize what's going on right in front of them, mm-hmm. and so they might list their properties, which you know ultimately they, they end up walking away with the m- amount of money they want. Yeah, but investors see it from a different lens. I'm like, okay, I'll buy that property for a hundred thousand dollars, put forty five to fifty thousand into it, and sell it for two fifty, and so that's what's that's what's going on in some of these high growth areas. And I encourage potential buyers to look at that as well. It's like, yeah, okay. just, just look at that and see what's going on. Okay, cool. Thank you. And how do you actually, how do you add value to, to a property? You talked about adding value. Like what are some ways that, you know, once again, me, just a random 22, 23, 24 year old could add value to a property? It's simple, you know, simple things like changing light fixtures, painting, changing the floors, right? Sometimes adding value doesn't mean knocking out a full wall, really just upgrading the things that you touch, your doorknobs, your your light fixtures, your plumbing fixtures, hell, your toilet, (laughs) you know? So things like that. Um, Don't have to think too much into it, but just things that we know will uh, cause consumers to kind of draw to you, right? so much can be changed in a room by just changing the chandelier or changing yeah. you know, the pendant lights so, or changing the countertops. Gotcha, gotcha. Thank you. Um, and so I know at a certain point you, so you both, both started in 19, opened your brokerage uh, 21, and then you started like developing actual like properties. Can you talk about how that, that one, what, why did you want to do that in the first place? Kind of start yeah. developing your own properties. Yeah, so uh, that actually started about seven years ago, man. So um, in 2011, 2012, when things started kind of rebounding in Texas, uh, what happened is properties were still low. And so we had a lot of, you know, out-of-town investors coming in, similar to what we got going on right now, out-of-town buyers coming in, buying properties, all cash, 
you know, 10, 15, $20,000 over asking price. And so my local buyers that I, you know, had to have financing, we were striking out. Okay. So that happened for, you know, quite a long time. And so it, ultimately I was trying to figure out solutions. How do we, how do we create this solution for this? And it was two ways we can go and, and get more listings or we can, create the inventory okay. and so i started i started you know doing research and i ended up uh i ended up stumbling upon this area in south dallas where there, there was a, a, a bunch of vacancies a bunch of land vacancies and so i decided that it was going to be best for us to create the inventory we could buy the buy the homes or excuse okay. me buy the lots build on them and sell them directly to our clients okay so that's what that's what drove us to this point. And it's like, okay, my client, I was looking for a solution to help my clients. Gotcha. Um, and then it just really spiraled out of control. <laughs> it's like, wow, I really love this stuff because okay. I'm, I'm one, I'm making a difference. I'm I'm creating a, a neighborhood and, and bringing people to a neighborhood and helping to stabilize that neighborhood. But also I'm giving people an opportunity to purchase in an area that they would not ne necessarily have, have done. You know, so I'm creating a vision for them and showing them, hey, this is a high growth area. Watch what happens. And that's what has happened over the the, the past, you know, six or seven years. This specific area has blown up. And some of the, the people who bought early on from us, who purchased, you know, our clients who purchased from us have seen, you know, almost a $100,000 increase in their home value. Okay. And so that they, they have that equity on the table. Um, and that's how I started getting into it. I really love... I, I love the way uh, that creative process um, happened. And so you buy the land, design the home, build the home, and then pass the keys to somebody else was, you know, kind of got me excited. Okay, thank you. And uh, I, I know you can probably talk about this for a long time, but maybe uh, in a short kind of uh, snapshot, like, so you, you, how do you actually do it? You buy the land, you get developers, you got blueprints, like you're buying the materials, like how, like, how does that process actually actually work? Yeah. I don't so, know the average person can't just build it. Or can the average person just build a, build a house like you did? Yeah, you just got to get the right developer or builder to work with you on that. So me, okay. as a developer, I don't do the sticks and bricks build. I hire a builder to do that. And I just create the vision. So I buy the land. I create the vision, get the financing for the vision, and then hire somebody to execute it in, in a builder. Okay. And so that's... Uh, that's really how you do it. The simplest form is buy the land, say what you want to build on it, get that design, get the financing to do that, and then hire the builder to help you create it. Okay. And so from a financing standpoint, so I know like um, on the lending side, you know, there's kind of two types of finance, like interim financing, what I call just normal, normal finance, interim being like uh, we, we have to pay the contractors every step of the way. What, what, what kind of financing are your buyers using like to purchase these homes? Right. So there, there's a couple different ways to do it. One would be your interim construction loan, um, which is the way most of them do it. Okay. Or the, the builder or the developer myself will do the financing on the front end. They'll come in and, and purchase it just a regular, like a regular purchase when it's completed. And so, you know, or a combination of the two. So it's just okay. really, a you know, what, what the what the two agree to, the two parties agree to. Okay, thank you. And how do you go about determining the value of the home, like setting prices and, and making sure like you're not, um, you know, outpriced? You're, you're not, um, how can I say this? 
so there's people obviously in the neighborhood whose homes are a certain value. You bring in these nicer homes, the value of the neighborhood goes up, property tax and stuff goes up as well. Like, how do you go about maintaining like affordable housing in the neighborhood and making sure the folks in the neighborhood are, are potentially negatively uh, impacted? Yeah, so that's that's a that's a conversation that probably takes a little bit more time than we got right now. But you know, you really have to. Um, there, there's a way to develop in these areas without impacting um, everybody else negatively um, in such a way. And so, depending on how you look at this, you know, for the long-term residents who own the properties, who've been there forever and are older, I always encourage them to file all of your tax exemption, your property tax exemption, because your property taxes will stay the same if you do what's necessary. Gotcha. Um, it does not matter what you build next to them. It could be a $100,000 house, a hundred and fifty dollars or $200,000 house, which are all affordable. Mm -hmm. If the entire neighborhood has been disinvested in for so long and you build a hundred, $200,000 home next to it, doesn't matter. The, those property values are going to increase. Yeah, yeah. And so we're impacting the area in that, in that way where, you know, now you have some equity in your home. Now, from a tax perspective, there's things that we're going to have to continue to push for, which I do push for is how do we, how do we taper the property tax increases mm -hmm. every single year in these high growth or gentrifying areas. And that, that's going to come down to legislation from Austin, right? Okay. There's some, there's some mechanisms that are in place right now through, you know, for, you know, your, your, your over, your older population, homestead exemptions, over 65 exemptions, disability exemptions, those types of things um, that they need to, that most people don't take advantage of, but they should. Okay. And so um, that, that's kind of a balancing act, right? Um, and the only solution that I see is through legislation. Gotcha. Um, because the alternative would be just leaving the area like it is. Yeah, yeah. So, cool. And how, how do you define, uh, I mean, it's a broad question, but how do you define like affordable housing? Like what would be your definition of affordable housing? So I use, I use the definition that HUD has set forth, right? And so okay. looking at, looking at affordable housing as uh, a percentage of a family's um, annual income. And so they like for that number to be at or around 30, 33% of that family's annual income. If it's above that point for that specific family, then it's considered unaffordable. Um, and so um, the, uh, HUD has different metrics that they look at based on household size and then AMI, right? And so there's, there's levels to that. There's 80% of AMI, which is, you know, or below, which is con considered affordable. Then they have, you know, your 80 to 120% of area median income. Um, that's considered your, your uh, workforce housing. And then you have stuff lower than 60% AMI. That's your, is considered uh, very low income housing. So, okay. so it's, 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 it's a tiered structure based on a family's income. We typically bill for folks who are at 120% of AMI or below. So we okay. capture that whole demographic. Okay, thank you. And this may be my last question on this topic. How do you actually go about setting like a, a home price to begin with? Because like you're going to a brand new area um, where ho homes are older. Um, and then you're, you're building like this, these nice houses. Like, how do you say, hey, this home is worth, you know, whatever the home is worth. Like, how do you figure that out? That, that was difficult, I'll be honest. Um, and so because there was nothing that was really built in the area beforehand, uh -huh. you have to kind of go to the closest neighborhood. So I looked at things from how, 
an appraiser will look at it. They'll go, you know, one to three months, then they go, you know, one to two miles out. If there's nothing, you'll go, you know, further back in time. If there's nothing there, then you go further out in, you know, in radius. And so that's what I did. So I looked at, you know, I went back two years and I went out about three a three mile radius and i was able to pull things from a neighboring neighborhood it's like okay these are really the only comps and so it was it was neighboring so i was able to you know bring those comps in and say hey look you know we might not be at this price but based on the neighboring community we should at least be at this point and so that's what we had to work on and once we set that comp it was easier for, you know, going forward. Okay. Um, got you. Thank you. Um, and so you were building basically homes in the, in the Dallas area. And then what inspired you to say, Hey, I want to, I want to, I want to go out and kind of develop my own um, kind of retreat community with the Lake, Lake New Water project you're working on now. Yeah. So over the past, like I said, six, seven years that, that we've been in development and we, my team and I, um, we've been able to impact, you know, quite a few families and, and, and see some things. And so I'm a hunter by nature and I bought this property originally um, to hunt. And um, in my progression and trajectory of my development career, I just took a step back and said, well, what can I do to create an income producing property that everybody can enjoy? And so with the the pandemic around and all that stuff, we have uh, pretty much, you know, everybody's into the glamping, um, and the camping and the tiny cabin trend. And so I wanted to create this retreat that allows for a peaceful escape for people who are into that type of thing. And so it's still development. I'm still able to, um, build and create these tiny homes. And the proof of concept comes because I saw what folks were doing in this broken boat situation up in Oklahoma. Okay. So I'm like, okay, if we're an hour and a half South, could we create a concept similar? And that's where it came from. And uh, I looked at it, looked at the numbers, and it just it just ended up being a dynamic situation and a fun project. And so oftentimes when you kind of get into the swing of things, things get a little bit more serious than, than you really wanted them to at the beginning, right? And so building affordable housing is tough, right? You got cities and all that stuff. And so sometimes those cities take the joy out of it. And it kind of beats you down, but you got a purpose. And so you keep doing it. But this project is um, is the fun project, right? So that's where I'm like, okay, we can create something cool. We can be, we can have fun with it. So that's where it started. Real, real quick, before we get too deep, can you describe like actually what the project is? Like I know the project is as far, I've, you know, I've been on the website, I've seen you post stuff, but just for the folks listening, what, what exactly is the project? So the retreat at Lake Noir is a 15-acre retreat where we're building a three-and-a-half-acre man-made lake with 20 tiny cabins surrounding that. Uh, it's, a, it's a place for people to, to get away, unplug, be one with nature, with your family, enjoy the, 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 the lake. You can fish, you can boat, you can do all that stuff out there. Um, and uh, it's in Oakwood, Texas. It's about an hour and a half south um, of of Dallas, about two hours north of Houston. Um, and so it's 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 going to be a fun project. It's going to be cool. People will be able to rent these cabins out on a nightly basis. Um, and what, what we're doing is we've created a, a regulation CF crowdfund 
that allows for people to uh, join in as investors on this on this deal. And so anybody over the age of 18 can invest a minimum of $1,000 into the project and see a return just like uh, the big investors do on their larger projects. So this is, this is a cool, I'm making it inclusive, bringing as many investors in. Uh, and we're raising a million dollars to do that. Okay. So it's gonna be fun. Uh, and it's gonna be an opportunity for our investors to see a profit from the success of this project too long-term. Oh, okay, 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 awesome. And so, um... Obviously, with that, there's there's uh, different challenges. Obviously, building a home within the city. Is it is it? I don't know. Is it harder, easier? I don't know if there's is your land. Is it less restrictions? Um, yeah. How's that, how, that process been going right now? Right now, it's been going great. We're doing site work at the moment, okay. but it is less restrictive because it's in a rural area, and okay. so you pretty much do whatever on your land in a rural area. Right. Um, so we already have the utilities running to the property. Um, one thing that we have to do is uh, do some digging for the lake. We're probably going to hit groundwater to get that filled up. And ultimately, um, we don't have the, the nonsense of a city municipality telling us what we can do, what zoning we can do, or any of that. And so it's, uh, it's a little bit more dynamic than uh, having to build inside the city limits because you got so many people to answer to. Okay. How do you, how do you build a lake? Like, how, does, how does that work? Man, it's an interesting process. Uh, you really just dig. <laughs> you dig the shape that you want. Um, Got to find somewhere to put all that dirt, which we'll, you know, we'll use as pad sites for the cabins. All right. And then you you put a dam up, dam it up, make certain it doesn't overflow or, you know, that type of stuff. Um, and from there, you let nature run its course to fill it up. You got... You know, you got water coming from the sky and water coming from the ground. So, okay, so so it just just has okay. And then it's the other part as far as like getting electricity to the place. How does that work? Because I assume you're in the kind of the middle of nowhere. Like, how does that work to getting power to your your location? Yeah, so we already actually have power on site. Okay, um, Encore has you know like electricity lines running down that freeway already. Okay. Uh, so we're just going to run the utilities to each one of the cabins, but we're also going to have a solar component um, for each of the cabins. So that's kind of cool, too. Okay. And um, can you describe the cabins a little bit? Nate talked about, like, glamping. These are, like, because um, I've seen some pictures. Are they, like, uh, they're kind of, like, tent-shaped, but they're, like, they're like cabins, right? Like, you're here. Yeah. All so, okay. yeah, yeah. There, so there's two styles. We have the A-frame style uh, modern cabin, and we have kind of a barn style modern cabin. Um the modern luxury is kind of what we're going for. Um, and you build it just like you build a normal house, right? Except okay. they're just smaller. So gotcha, gotcha. you got about 150 square feet on the smallest one and just under 300 square feet on the largest one. Okay. And uh, what's the, the, the time frame? Like, I know you're working on the, the crowdfunding right now, but what, what's kind of like the, the timeline you're hopeful for from like uh, basically for, you know, your first guest to, to be in the cabin? So our, our first guest, so we expect to be done with this by 2023. Okay. Um, we're going to try to shoot for a, a before then completion, but, uh, you know, with weather and all those things, you, you want to give yourself time. Um, so 2023 is what we're gonna, when we expect to be getting our first guest. Um, our fund closes April 30th. So if folks are interested in investing in the fund, April 30th will be the the, the go-to um, date to look for. And then um, 
we're also doing an investor tour a couple times a, a month. So the first one is February 19th. I encourage anybody that's that's looking to get involved with this to come on the tour uh, and just to check it out. You know, this is really a really cool concept that a lot of people haven't seen from ground up, from inception to ground up. And so this is going to be a pretty dynamic, um, pretty dynamic situation for, for folks. Okay, yeah. okay awesome. And um, just for, for uh, once again, all, pretty much anything he's talking about, if it, if it sounds like something you want to check out, it'll be in the link to either the podcast or the YouTube episode as well. So you can easily just click down there and, uh, and check that out. Um, I think that may be all all I have. I mean, I really, really appreciate you coming on. I really appreciate your time, everything you're you're doing from uh like I said, that's kind of like an amazing story from from 19 just hey, I'm going to buy a house with with the um to developing like your own community basis. That that's that's a uh, um I don't know, that's, that's that's just that's kind of kind of kind of kind of dope. Um my last question that I always ask guests is um if you had seven days to spend a million dollars, you have to spend all a million dollars on something real estate adjacent or you lose the, the million dollars what would you do with it so if i had a million dollars but i couldn't spend it on real no estate? no yeah yeah seven days to spend a million dollars on something real estate related what would you spend it on <sighs> what would i spend it on i probably would leverage that million dollars out to purchase um land and uh to purchase some multi income producing properties not just multifamily but anything that's income producing already um, I would I would figure out how to have that million dollars spitting out about twelve to fifteen percent annually, uh, while also capitalizing on um, inflation that's happening. So and the property growth. So um, land first thing first. I will buy land. Then I will buy you know income producing properties. Maybe some storage units, some multifamily. Um, yeah, that's that's how I'll do that. Okay, gotcha. Thank you. And I guess I, that was not my final question. So you talked about the, the multifamily uh, property. So what what are your thoughts on like the first type of property so much about? Some people say buy your multifamily property. Some say house hack. Some say just yeah. like, like you were saying, buy buy a property. You're only gonna, you're going to be there five to seven years. Build equity. Like there's no one size fits all. But hey, average person, what type what type of property should they probably purchase out of the gate? Do you think? I, I depending on what market you're in, I would definitely. 100% go after a one to four unit property. Okay. HUD considers a one to four unit property uh, as a single family property and you can get uh, FHA loan with three and a half percent down and have your one to four unit property. Live in one of the units, rent out the others um, and do it again after that. If I had to do it all over again, I would have bought a duplex, triplex or quadruplex. Okay. At, at that 19 years uh year old age but yeah um do that i heavily consider depending on the market you know you got to make certain that the numbers work uh some markets are, are a bit more expensive so it might not work from a lender's perspective but you know I, that would be my target <laughs> that would be my target and where, where once again where can folks um find you find your your projects at yeah, man, just you, you can follow me online. My main social media is, is Instagram. So Scotty, uh, Scotty with an I-E-L Smith is my uh, is my IG. And then I'm also on Facebook, Scotty L. Smith. So um, I'm there. That's where all my projects are. You can just follow me online or catch my website at scottysmith.co. 
Okay, cool. Appreciate it. And uh, once again, that is uh, the show. Thanks again for uh, Scotty for coming on. And there is no outro. So this show is over. So. Peace, man. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.